0: Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Bianca. And I'm Gianna. Hello, everyone. This is our first recording in separate places. I'm back at my lethal apartment in Pennsylvania, and Gianna's (laughs) in Oklahoma. How's it going? How's Oklahoma? It's, It's good. This is crazy. I'm kind of liking it, though. I think it's so far, so good. Yeah, I think that it's nice to be able to have my own mic and my own setup, so we're not both scrambling on the floor <laughs> together. As much as I miss you being here, this yeah. also has its perks to it. Yeah, I feel extremely comfortable with my setup right now. I have lots of space to spread out, and I do like that we can each have our own mic. That is nice. Yeah. I just saw you like four days ago, but I miss you. I know. I miss you too. It kind of feels like longer than that. Yeah, it does. The apartment's good. Apartment's good. Yeah, just been hanging out. Been able to walk around town and do some baking. And a few days ago, I made for the first time some focaccia bread. And I'm not going to lie, I think it turned out really well. I was laughing at myself because I... You're supposed to sprinkle, you know, salt on top whenever it's baking in the oven when you put this little brine on it to make it nice and crunchy.
1: And mm, I was, crunchy.
0: yeah, I was laughing at myself because I think, I mean, I put like a decent amount of salt on top of the bread. And when I tasted it, I was like, oh my God, this is so good. And then I thought, hmm, I think Gianna would think this is too salty. <laughs> I. Love salt, don't get me wrong. I think a lot of times I'm a salty person more than a sweet person, mm-hmm. but I just think overall your tolerance for salt is just a lot higher than mine <laughs> is. And I love a good salty margarita, but mm. I don't like drinking seawater like you do. <laughs> I feel like you just swallow a mouthful of ocean and you're like, nom nom. <laughs> Nom nom, David. Nom nom. I think it's delicious. I love a good salty Marg and some salty bread and a salty attitude. Well, you heard it here first. (laughs) Gianna, I was watching the news this morning and I was going to ask if you saw that the astronauts landed back safely from the SpaceX launch. (laughs) Bianca, oh my god, I didn't know that they were coming back (laughs) till i just opened up my facebook and then i was watching the news and i was like holy shit i had no idea it had already been two months you know this whole thing has gone by so fast and yeah they you know landed in the water and i guess it's fine but well did you see all the boats swarming the the pod when it landed in the water ew yeah why just people like what is this no well people knew it was landing people knew it was supposed to land and once the Pod landed in the water, all these boats swarmed because they wanted to see it. It was just like regular people who wanted to see it. And then people at NASA were talking about how next time they really got to watch out for that. And, you know, it's because it's not not safe. Right. And then they had to rescue the astronauts, too. So, then they had to get, like, a boat out there to get the pod and get the right. people out. and yeah because right. they were going to have to do that anyways, obviously, and it's a lot harder to do that with a bunch of spectators. Right, exactly. Yeah. Plus, people we don't know if worst. it's safe. I mean, you no, don't know. Right? What, what if they it just, just like, came if, back from space? What if it just, like, exploded <laughs> in the water? Like, Christ. <laughs> I'm not going anyways it. So I don't know if I had more or less anxiety about it because I – you know if i knew or didn't know it was happening i don't know but i i don't know i'm happy that it's over because i just i just can't deal with it but you know anyways anyway well i'm sure we'll be seeing more of it soon i guess yes but on another note did you watch black as king yet on disney plus okay no it's on my list i honestly feel really guilty that i didn't watch it the second it came out thursday night or on friday mm-hmm. but i started watching killing eve with oh. sandra oh and i'm addicted so really yeah i love sandra O. Oh. she's so good and honestly the like villain assassiness mm-hmm. is incredible i think i have a really big girl crush on her and so as i'm watching this show i'm like these assassins are in love with each other like they're really attractive <laughs> assassins <laughs> but let us not forget sandra O.'s most iconic role in the princess diaries uh, cuped up <laughs> <top. laughs> the, the, the queen, queen is coming <laughs> write it on her gravestone she deserves an it. emmy for that role she does i would love to see it or a golden know? globe yeah or an oscar i guess she probably couldn't get an emmy for it because that's television specifically well, I mean, whatever she won an emmy for killing eve so no love sandra O, oh, love that for you thanks i'm really excited i was really happy to find a new show I need a new show because I've just been rewatching Schitt's Creek, and as <laughs> much as I enjoy these moments with myself, I need a new new show. Mm-hmm. Well, I recommend Killing Eve. What is it on? It's on Hulu. It's a BBC show, but all the episodes are on Hulu. I need them okay. to put more Drag Race on Hulu, stat. Oh yes, but you said that you did watch that Muppets episode, right? With yes, RuPaul, it was so cute. <laughs> so i really like the muppets i think because i i would say that i don't love adult cartoons a whole lot Mm -hmm. but the muppets i can for sure get behind and so there's a new muppets show on disney plus and i watched the first episode and it was cute but rupaul was the guest and his lap is just precious i love it and i thought it was really sweet so cute i'll I'll probably Um, keep watching you know now that i think about it i mean the evolution of the muppets and that kind of tv puppetry is really interesting yeah maybe we could have mom on to talk about the muppets because when she was finishing her degree she wrote um that whole paper on the creator of the muppets what was his name again jim henson yes yeah so she has i don't know a lifetime of knowledge about jim henson got a lifetime of knowledge (laughs) lifetime of knowledge anyways things to think about things to think about so thank you everyone for dealing with a bit of an unusual episode last week gianna and i weren't feeling great but (laughs) we've recovered thank god thank you to everyone who has also bought some merch they are going to be shipping out to you this week. As a reminder, you can still get stickers and magnets on our website at artpoptop.com shop. They are so cute. The stickers came in and I put them on my, well, the magnets I put on my fridge and the stickers I put on my computer and I'm really loving this look. Oh, yeah. No, your fridge looks so cute right now. Thank you. I also really appreciate the pictures of both me and Audrey, you know, APT Queens. So, yeah, I love it. But yeah, last week was really exciting with getting to, of course, release a new merchandise and also getting... To share our video um, with the collaboration we did with the Oklahoma City Museum of Art. So, again, just a huge thank you to Zach Fowler for helping us put that together, and, you know, just for putting it together and letting us be a part of it. And we are just really happy to be back to normal as well. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, today's Art Pop Talk. <laughs> is going to be a continuation of last week's episode we hope that you all had a chance to see the little video released by the oklahoma city museum of art and so today we are going to finish talking about their exhibition pop power So in a couple episodes back, we went to the OSU Museum of Art to talk about some featured works in their pop art exhibition. So in that episode called The Bobbies of Pop Art, Bianca gave us a really great comprehensive overview of the pop art movement in the first half of the segment. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, please just pause us here and then go take a listen over (laughs) there. For the sake of not being too redundant today i am just going to use the pop power curatorial statement to give you a brief description of the influences of pop art and give you an idea of the major concepts or big ideas that are carried out through this exhibition Pop art first emerged in Britain and America in 1950, tapping into the growth of consumerism in both countries after World War II. However, the movement flourished most strongly in the United States in the 1960s. It began as a revolt by young artists against the prevailing approaches to the arts and culture and traditional ideas about what art could be. Pop artists turned away from the painterly looseness of the dominant style of abstraction and returned to representational art, creating works with hard edges and distinct forms for their imagery they drew inspiration from the world around them including advertising product packaging music comic books and film yes so hence the full name of the exhibition is pop power from warhol to coons this exhibition really highlights many of those big name pop artists with a few kind of surprises thrown in there so when you walk into the exhibition, we see a lot of Warhols in the first gallery mixed in with some Robert Indiana. Then as we move from the gallery to gallery, we get Klaus Oldenburg, his wife Kuji van Bruggen, Roy Lichtenstein, Keith Haring, Nikki de Saint Phalle, Damien Hirst, Jeff Koons and Takashi Murakami. And there's also a few more artists found throughout there as well. Although pop art declined in the 1970s, in this exhibition we see a new generation of pop or neo-pop artists that emerged in the late 80s, which are a lot of those artists that Bianca just described such as Damien Hirst or Jeff Koons. Mm-hmm two of the artists in this exhibition that we are going to mainly be focusing on in this episode are going to be Damien Hirst and Keith Haring, two artists that partake in both two-dimensional work and sculptural work. We are going to mention also a couple artists and a couple other works as we go along to give you an idea of the works and how the space is curated in this exhibition. Perfect. The exhibition is organized by the Jordan D. Schnitzer and his family foundation, so I'm just going to quote a little description from their website. Jordan D. Schnitzer began collecting contemporary prints and multiples in, in 1988. Today, the collection exceeds 13,000 works and includes many of today's most important contemporary artists. It has grown to be the country's largest private print collection. He and his family foundation generously lend work from the collection to qualified institutions and has organized over 110 exhibitions and has art exhibited over 150 museums. Mr. Schnitzer is also president of harsh investment properties a privately owned real estate investment company based in portland oregon the more you know the more you know so (laughs) i was thinking about it's interesting that this exhibition is organized by this foundation so a few summers ago i worked for northwestern mutual And I also interned for a private collector in Santa Fe one summer as well. And since these internships, I've learned a lot about private art collections and I'm finding private collectors a lot more interesting since it's not something that I talked a ton about within classes. And of course private collections come up. We also talked about private collectors a bit with the OSU Museum of Art episode, The Bobbies of Pop Art, but it's it's never something that was really a major discussion in class. For example, like what the job market looks like working for a private collection, for a corporate company, or these different kind of art spaces that, you know, aren't a museum or gallery for the purposes mm-hmm. of this exhibition how a private collection may dictate how the masses who visit that art museum can think about certain artworks, artists, and major movements, I thought was really interesting. And it caught my eye, that little quote from the Schnitzer Foundation, thinking about what different collectors deem, quote-unquote, the most important art or artists. And the most important works within different movements or time periods in this Mm -hmm. exhibition there are very well known and prolific figures from the pop art movement clearly from warhol to coons it definitely makes that clear statement about the types of works you're going to find in the show and that brings that kind of bang for your buck maybe atmosphere to, to the exhibition But I got just a little caught up on that phrase, the most important artist. I mean, what makes an artist one of the most important? (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's a question that I'm not suggesting we're going to answer right now or ever. But it got me thinking about who exactly is being featured here and how people who enter this exhibition space think about the pop art movement and who gets to be the most important and while the show actually has a lot of interesting work that we'll talk about but was maybe somewhat different from these big names their kind of usual style so Damien Hirst we have prints instead of those major sculptures and then flipping that we have Keith Haring sculptures and then Mm -hmm. Lichtenstein there's a big textile and the Robert Indiana love carpet which are mediums that I wouldn't really have picked for each of the those artists you know based on their primary or i don't know if you want to call it their most well-known medium so while these are different types of works from some of these big name quote-unquote most important artists there's maybe two women in the show i don't remember any other women artists besides nikki de Saint file and kuji van bruggen And it's also predominantly white artists here with Takashi Murakami being an artist from Japan. While Gianna and I are still excited to talk about Hearst and Herring today, I still think it matters to talk about the great things we can learn from the show with these kind of textbook names, but also acknowledging how we can continue to view the pop art movement differently and maybe make it a bit more inclusive or just think about you know be critical of who's being featured in that kind of most important pop art uh period i guess right yeah that was all really well said and like you did say that goes for any kind of venue space gallery museum that is showing works from any kind of donor or private collection of artwork if we are going to go in and like analyze any kind of space curatorial project, it all, you have to start, you know, you have to look where it starts and that starts back at the foundation. Um, I did look through the Schnitzer foundations website and I must say, I was really impressed with their website. Mm -hmm. Um, They have a very large collection and seem to have featured it in a, uh, huge amount of museums and gallery right. spaces so which is really um, nice that a private collector is lending those works like that and and organizing exhibitions and cuz it's so sad when you I mean, in my experience, working for a private collector and those artworks never get seen, you know? Right, right, exactly. So I think all in all, the the work that this foundation is doing is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm really happy with the pieces that we're going to be talking about today in regards to Keith Herring being an AIDS activist artist and also getting to see a different side of both Hearst and Herring's work as well. Um so I was very excited that these pieces were a part of this collection. Yeah, so do you want to talk about the show a little bit, Gianna? Oh, I would love Ooh. to talk about the show. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. When you first walk into this uh the space, there are a couple familiar faces and works that we Cannot not talk about. <laughs> um, they are amazing, starting with a visual most of you are familiar with now, which is the love piece created by Robert Indiana that Bianca just mentioned. So, because, you know, we stand a Bobby here at APT,
1: you know what I want could to
0: go for is a Bobby sandwich. Ooh, Bianca. Wow, we really do stan a bobby. I stan a bobby. Do or you t- think that and sandwiches? Uh, do you think that the tartlets know what a bobby is? I I don't know. I, it depends on where they're listening from. Oh my god. So basically a bobby is a Thanksgiving sandwich. <laughs> it's freaking delicious. So good. It's turkey and is it does it have mayo on it? Yes. And cranberry and stuffing and most importantly stuffing stuffing. Mm, it's so good most of the time you can get it from capriottis or that's where we've gotten it from in the past but some other sandwich shops at least on the east coast have a delightful thanksgiving style sandwich but the name has got to be the bobby always Uh, i freaking love a bobby um do you know who else likes a bobby Who i think is joe biden <laughs> joe biden stands capriottis and ice cream you know that's all i really need that's all i'm looking for here so <laughs> not trump likes bobbies likes ice cream yep that's what we're working with at this it point. kind of checks off all my boxes at this point i don't uh, know <laughs> terrible. going back to the art going back to art um sandwiches are art oh god next episode is a sandwich art Yes the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Talk to you on Tuesday. <laughs> we are walking in the space. We stand a bobby here and It is important to know that Robert Indiana's love piece is in this exhibition, but it is not a traditional print or sculpture that we talked about in our The Bobbies of Pop Art episode. It's actually a square kind of shag rug rug that's red and blue and also freaking adorable. It's really cute it's so cute but i think having a sort of commercial good in the first space you walk into really helps to set the tone for the environment and and the one that we also referred to in the last episode i thought it was interesting that you brought that up as like a rug being a commercial product because it is but i think there's also this like juxtaposition of rugs where you get you know like a really fancy handcrafted rug or thinking about the setting that the rug belongs in does it belong in a domestic space where Mm -hmm. rugs used or because we're looking at pop art that commercialized and consumerist realm does the rug lend itself to that kind of corporate environment i just thought it was interesting yeah, sometimes I have to catch myself because I sometimes I use the words like commercial and consumer as like interchangeable when yeah. like they're not. Mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely. I just think it was interesting that throughout the space we have recreations of art presented in functional objects mm-hmm. and we start off the space with having this rug right. right there. Right. Yeah. So on the opposite wall there is this eye-catching and Sparkling body of work that is a series of six prints total, three of Queen Elizabeth II and three of Queen Ntombi Twala of Swaziland, all from the Reigning Queen Royal Edition by Andy Warhol. So these prints are absolutely stunning, stunning, and. And I think also why I like them so much is that they show <laughs> a little difference when it comes to Warhol's artistic style, because here Warhol isn't using the process of screen printing solely to create these portraits. He's actually also using other methods of drawing to create more detailed line work, and they're more complex images, I right. think. Yeah, and, and they're, they're very textural. Very textural, and he incorporates other materials like using actual freaking diamond dust to add this sparkle and this royal effect. The sparkling diamond, in the words of the great Toulouse Lautrec, in the film Moulin Rouge, played by John Leguizamo, (laughs) the sparkling diamond. That quote has so many layers to it. Truly, truly does. Love it, love it. The images that Warhol used were originally sourced from official photographs of these royal women. And actually, the entire series includes two other royal figures as well, just not featured in this exhibition. Mm -hmm. But when we look at even just the two amazing portraits that we have in this exhibition, in the reigning queen portfolio, Warhol depicts these female monarchs in their own right, rather than as women who were married to a king. Mm-hmm. which you know I find very refreshing <laughs> so <laughs> it's always nice to see um, <laughs> but this isolation of the figure is also true to his other portraits and his other you know style prior to the series where we see his obsession with fame of any kind whether that be Marilyn Monroe a pop culture icon portrayed as a religious christian icon or a number of other political figures gianna yes i love that and i just feel like i need to say i'm a big fat sucker for andy warhol (laughs) i just i adore him and i love everything he does and i think one of my favorite things is this video of Warhol where he's just putting on this ridiculous attitude in front of all these reporters. He I think he's with like a publicist or a friend of some sort, but he's trying so hard just to be like a complete asshole and he just keeps laughing throughout this whole like list of questions that people are feeding him and I just I love it. But aside from the sparkling diamonds. in sparkling diamonds. Pieces of glitter fall from the fall. Or fall from the ceiling. Fall from the fall. Fall from the fall. And <laughs> enter Nicole Kidman. <laughs> I love that these two queens are placed on the same scale and the same level. Elizabeth and Natobi are... Two women leaders of different races. But in these two portraits, we have three images of each queen in sort of that kind of typical bright Warhol color scheme. We don't see traditional portrait colors highlighting real skin tones, but we see these figures in these same kind of color field patterns in a blank colored background, each with abstract shapes surrounding them. And they appear to be wearing their two kinds of identifiable royal regalia. But I love that they're just placed on such similar scales. I agree. There is no, like, there's no other real differentiation between the way that each female is presented other than the way that, like, you know, the different color blocking and abstraction of the portrait just happens to be. I really like this work a lot. I I thought need them in my apartment the pink one though i like really like it's very on brand with apg it really is i have the perfect place for it to right as you walk in my door i really think (laughs) i need some pink queens looking at me oh wow i think i look good you can put it right next to the portrait i did with you oh totally let's talk a little about keith herring shall we yeah sweet Keith Haring was born on May 4th, 1958, actually in Reading, PA, which is not too far from me. He developed a love for drawing at a very early age, learning basic cartooning skills from his father and from popular culture around him, such as Dr. Seuss and Walt Disney. Upon graduation from high school, Herring enrolled in the Ivy School of Professional Art in Pittsburgh, which is a commercial art school. He soon realized that he had little interest in becoming a commercial graphic artist, and after two semesters, he dropped out. Later that same year, Herring moved to New York City and enrolled in the School of Visual Arts. In New York, Herring found a thriving alternative art community that was developing outside the gallery and museum system. In the downtown streets, in the subways, in clubs, dance halls, this is where he developed a very close relationship with fellow artist Basquiat as well. The two were really good friends. Keith Haring began really as a graffiti artist who illegally drew white chalk on unused black advertisement blackboards in New York City subways. Later, he named several of his series of small prints, each group having its own bright color scheme and suggested narratives um, after the pop shop that he established in New York's Soho neighborhood in 1986. He opened the shop, which was a retail store that sold t-shirts, toys, posters, buttons, and magnets, bearing his very iconic images and stylized figures. Herring considered the shop to be an extension of his work and painted the entire interior of the store in an abstract black on white mural, creating this really striking and unique different kind of retail environment. The shop was intended to allow people greater access to his work, which was now readily available on products at a low cost. The shop received a lot of criticism from many in the art world, however, Herring remained committed to his desire to make his artwork available to as wide an audience as possible and he received strong support from his for his projects from his friends, fans, and mem- mentors, including Mr. Andy Warhol. The pop shop sold t-shirts and novelty items, sporting herrings, and other artists' imagery. Herring's philosophy of the pop shop looked back to his earlier Subway graffiti. He said, quote, I wanted to continue the same sort of communication as with the subway drawings. I wanted to attract the same wide range of people. I wanted it to be a place where, yes, not only collectors could come, but also kids from the Bronx. End quote. Throughout his career, Herring devoted much of his time to public works, which often carried really heavy social messages, He produced more than 50 public artworks between 1982 and 89 in dozens of cities around the world, many of which were created for charities, hospitals, children's daycare centers, and orphanages. The now-famous Crack is Whack mural of 1986 has also become a huge landmark in New York City. Herring was an openly gay man and used his work to advocate for safe sex, Herring was diagnosed with AIDS in 1988, and in 1989, he established the Keith Herring Foundation, its mandate being to provide funding and imagery to AIDS organizations and children's programs, and to expand the audience for Herring's work through exhibitions, publications, and the licensing of his images. Herring enlisted his imagery during the last years of his life to speak about his own illness, and to generate activism and awareness about AIDS. Keith Haring died of AIDS-related complications at the age of 31 on February 16, 1990. It's so sad that he died so young, yeah. but it's incredible the amount of work that he did produced, even for an artist who started out as a graffiti artist, someone that you might think was just producing a lot of work but even with that real and honestly i did not know about the pop shop that he had so yeah. i'm i'm curious if that i know that it was kind of set up like a store or like a shop mm-hmm. but was there also like a gallery space within it i think it was kind of both i mean the walls were all decorated mm-hmm. or painted in his style um, and other artists imagery was featured there. I'm not sure in what kind of context other than items being for sale, but I would imagine that every now and or, you know, there were pieces that were shown in, in some sort of capacity. That's really interesting. I'm really excited to have you talk about this next piece because I, I think it adds, and especially the label statement that came with the piece also really adds an extra layer of depth to his work that even i hadn't really thought about that much before so so in the exhibition we have really about half of one of the gallery sections featuring all work by herring this piece is called dog from 1986 it's a screen print on painted wood and i'm just going to read the museum label that goes along with this piece Featuring bold color and outlines, the wooden sculpture dog portrays a simple shape of one of Herring's iconic canine images filled with recognizable cartoonish forms, including animals and human figures. What started as an undefined creature in Herring's art later morphed into dancing, barking, and biting dogs, reoccurring motifs that could be understood as stand-ins for human beings. While Herring's stand-in human-like dog figure we see here sometimes refer to breakdancing, artistic performance, or oppressive authority. Sidebar, Herring also participated in a lot of those kind of underground performance pieces during the 80s, during his time in New York. So performance art was, in addition to his big murals, a big part of how he viewed art and experienced art in that, I guess, um, hearkening back to that kind of public space and that accessibility and mass kind of participation. So back to the label. His dogs also allude to Anubis, the ancient Egyptian jackal-headed god who watches over the dead. So this work in the gallery stands out quite a bit amongst the other herring works. A lot of the surrounding pieces Are smaller, they're framed and hung in groups together that make this work act as kind of a centerpiece to the space. And Herring actually has quite a bit of sculptural work he's done, including these aluminum figures that remind me um, of something very playful. They feel to me like playground sculptures or are definitely reminiscent of public art. They're his kind of iconic figures, but built in these like uh, puzzle piece aluminum ways yeah i also think that material is so interesting too because when you think of something as simple as aluminum like a very tangible uh, very accessible material very similar to i think his process behind his graffiti work as well this work is filled with cartoonish figures that we kind of typically see from herring This sculpture, however, feels out of the ordinary for me. It's wood, but it looks very thick and it clearly sticks out from the wall that it's hanging on. I can't really see this work in such a public space like you find his other sculptures and murals just because of one, the material, wood. And two, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to to standing up on its own. It's clearly hung against something. And the museum label's comparison to the figure of Anubis reminded me of the Candy Works by Felix Gonzalez-Torres, where you have this very sweet, playful, and maybe childlike material Uh, but in the in the context of that piece it's reminiscent of death and the artist's relationship with aids and in herring we also have this dog figure which to me at, at first seems playful there's that idea of loyalty that you typically talk a lot about with dogs in portraiture throughout art history but then Thinking about the resemblance to Anubis obviously recalls death and the artist's relationship with it and perhaps with AIDS as well. I've also just been thinking a lot about the visual pairing of Anubis and also his mark making that style, kind of making it look like a certain written language or Mm -hmm. like a hieroglyph. Yeah. I've just been thinking about the kind of deconstructing that quote like language or these marks that he's making and also speaking to the misunderstanding the lack of knowledge and the lack of education surrounded by AIDS in general right and And this piece is from 86 so right exactly so just in listening to you talk about that and when we were at the museum I just had never really thought about his general like mark making and style in that way because it really is y- you understand what his messages are even with his playful figures that he draws mm-hmm. but there's always this certain level of deconstructing or decoding right. what Herring is trying to say. I think that this is also a really good segue into our last artist on the agenda for today which is Damien Hurst because Hurst is also tackling some of those same things of death and just human condition, but from a very different perspective. Yes, I'm so excited for you to talk about Damien Hirst. All right. Here we go. (laughs) Damien Hirst is a British conceptual artist known for his controversial take on beauty, and found objects. Hearst was also a part of the Young British Artist Movement that rose to prominence in the late 80s and early 90s, which, according to the tape, were a loose group known for their openness to material and process, shocking tactics, and entrepreneurial attitudes. So I also find this interesting Mm -hmm. in relationship to Keith Haring's worth learning about that store as well. yeah. I think the idea of making your work accessible. And very uh, business-oriented. Running, right, yeah. r- running your practice like a business. Very interesting. Yeah. So Hearst's works were first recognized by an art collector, Charles Stachy, who later funded a very well-known work of art by Hearst, which is called The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living, which is a real life australian tiger shark suspended in formaldehyde which was shown in his first solo show in 1991 he continued using a variety of dead animals in the same format and although this work amongst others of his is not without its controversy Mm -hmm. he has continued to explore this theme of life death society sex drugs and you know really critique this discussion about the human condition and and debate these topics as well. Yeah. So I've studied Damien's work in a sculptural sense quite a bit. Mm
1: -hmm. He's very
0: well known and is one of the highest earning living artists today. In this exhibition, they have quite a few of his works, but they're not sculptural. (laughs) When we were there, I'm looking Mm -hmm. at these prints and I recognize one of them, which is a print of his 3D work, which is a real life human skull that has jewels on it or diamonds on it. And I started seeing these prints with this reoccurring pill motif and this idea of like medicine packaging or consumer packaging. And I'm mm. like, OMG, <laughs> are you kidding me? This is Damien Hirst. And I was unfamiliar with his 2D work and no one had in college ever talked to me about these 2D works yeah. because I guess he's just so well known for these uh, very controversial and exciting contemporary sculptural and installation works. So Yeah, it's really interesting how that controversy seems to take over mm-hmm. his body of work in a way to where yes. even you as a printmaker and a sculptor only right. saw one side of his artwork. I think that's the thing for me is sometimes I'm a little bit surprised when an artist does practice printmaking or not that I know necessarily if Damien Hirst is doing this print printed work himself. Mm -hmm. But I am surprised sometimes when people don't mention that to me, because when you have an artist that's doing those like two things, it's like gold, (laughs) you know, so Anyways, it was really exciting for me to see these works. And I had this immediate connection to them because I was able to analyze them in relationship and in comparison to his 3D work. So Mm -hmm. this is how we are going to talk about these pieces today. First, understanding the installation or three-dimensional work that has influenced these very simplistic and minimal prints that are in the exhibition of dots and colored circles representing pills or medications first i want to talk about hearst's piece called the medicine cabinet which is an installation of three cabinets filled with empty packaging of his grandmother's medication which hearst had requested she leave him before she passed so hearst had described (laughs) these medicine bottles as and i quote empty fucking vessels that are arranged and positioned to reflect internal human organs that the medication was used to fix, manage, or cure. So essentially, if you picture like a box and think about, oh, where would the heart be? Like if I placed mm-hmm. a person in that box, so then I'm gonna put this heart pill where mm-hmm. like the heart would be. Mm. Her says you can only cure people for so long and then they're going to die anyways. You can't arrest decay, but these medicine cabinets suggest you can. Mm. So this installation, like much of his other work, and again, like his other well-known pieces of the animals being preserved in formaldehyde, explores this distinction between life and death, but here, this constructed human condition that is being investigated is about this idea of myth, body, and medication. The printed work and the pop art exhibition exist in a variety of different sizes and forms, and they, there are, in fact, many more variations and additions outside of this exhibition as well. They can be found in the gallery space is especially important because they also mark this later day part of pop art and sets this pathway into this modern art movement and opens up the space to other contemporary artists such as Jeff Koons or Takashi Murakami going back to the images themselves, they are really playful. They're, again, very simple, very colorful. But more noteworthy is that the imagery being created is extremely familiar to the viewer by using the idea of a basic shape and then as a message for recognizable objects to the consumer, which I Mm -hmm. find really interesting, this kind of twofold process. So Not only does the, you know, the medicine or the pill motif connect with Hearst's career long fascination with the natural and unnatural causes of death, it also reflects his more holistic belief that art can heal through, Mm -hmm. you know, conversation, dialogue, knowledge, and education. Some of Damien's experimental or installation work is perhaps, again, not without interesting debate or controversy, what do you know I just kind of wanted to end today with really strongly encouraging that you all as listeners look into his other series and I will include some articles about his other well-known work as well on our resources page but my hope is that this episode provides you all with a foundation for the topic Hearst is, you know, tackling and he the way that he's going about it so because Hurst yeah is a major player in the contemporary art scene. It's really important to know what he has done and what he is up to now. As I encourage this independent investigation to you all as listeners, mm-hmm. you're welcome. I'm giving you homework. <laughs> okay. I just want to quickly share my perspective on Damien Hurst's outlook as an artist, which is essentially to promote conversation, investigation and question and learn what you are being presented with. It's this mindset that really is something that I do have a great amount of respect for. Because his goal in any work, I believe anyhow, is to not make you share his perspective necessarily, but formulate your own opinion Mm. about the work, about him as an artist, and about the message. And I think anytime an artist is formulating that kind of environment and is really respecting and valuing that relationship between object and viewer, I, I really think that's to be taken into an account and not overlooked. So... He's a really interesting guy. I think his work is absolutely fascinating and sometimes terrifying. All in all, I am very drawn to it. And, you know, we got to learn about him. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think that was so well said. And I love the juxtaposition of all these different things that are happening where we view medicine as both good and bad Things and Mm -hmm. they can both help and harm you. And there's so much tension to think about between that, but also thinking about the human body. And even I love that piece in the show with the bejeweled skull Mm -hmm. and that unnatural yet natural, also that sense of commercialization and obsession that we have with either something for me like something sparkly and shiny but also something very um morbid like death. Right. And I also think too, just in regards to the pill or, you know, the medicine cabinet mm-hmm. where again we're talking about, you know, for lack of better words, like western medication. Yeah. You know, we're not talking about holistic approaches to things. We're not talking about any other kind of approaches to mm-hmm health other than you know taking a, a pill for it yeah and so i also think he i mean you can interpret these pieces in a variety of different ways which again is the beauty of it but that is to be taken into account you know i'm not being presented with a, a straightforward herb or an element like from the earth i'm presented with this manufactured product essentially right right and i think that's something that overall Um, To kind of wrap things up That the show really does so well There are so many questions You can ask And even with the Jerry's Girl Painting You know Thinking about television shows So there's a piece that Basically combines all of jerry seinfeld's girlfriends in the television show into one like conglomerate figure and they all essentially the point is that they all look the same mm-hmm. and just thinking about coons and all these are the other artists like warhol who who are so in your face to have you ask those questions and honestly to get you kind of mad i think there's a very intentional kind of argumentative attitude that the show carries really well that I I personally really enjoy I like that kind of heated environment but I just I think it's interesting to watch and look at and and it's there there are so many things that can take place within this gallery and I really like that Yeah, I'm so glad that you said that because, you know, pop art can be, or at least the works in this exhibition can be misleading because they are so bright and they are so colorful and playful. And that's the idea. But when you really take the time and you really absorb what you're being surrounded with, yeah, it's, like, heated. Like, these are, like, Mm -hmm. you know, these are intense conversations that we've meant to be had. And, you know, going back to Damien Hirst, in reading a lot of quotes from him, he's a very outspoken very straightforward kind of guy yeah and i don't really think he gives a crap whether or not you like him because that's not his goal his well, goal is to n- make neither does you... coons right no coons oh, could care coons gives less no about what you think he's coons making bank two <laughs> and he doesn't care right but, i mean we got to do a whole separate thing on him <laughs> there's a, there's actually a documentary that uh i want to watch it's called the price of everything so uh, I need to watch that. You all should watch the price of everything, too, and maybe we can talk about a whole yeah. thing on Coons. <laughs> I, I mean, i love I love to hate them. yeah you know? yeah, no, I feel that I think this went really well, Gianna, first Woo! virtual episode. I think it went really well, too, yeah, I'm so excited. So, of course, you can always email us at artpoptalk@gmail.com. at gmail dot com. Definitely check out the Pop Power Exhibition if you're in Oklahoma City. Follow the Oklahoma City Museum of Art on Instagram. And with that, I think we will talk to you on Tuesday. Thank you, everyone. Bye.